Welcome to Out of Zion with Susan Michael, an exploration of the Bible and the land of Israel. From ancient biblical sites to the story behind the stories, join Susan on a journey through the most exciting book on the planet. Hit the subscribe button for future episodes, which will deepen your faith and bring the Bible to life. And now, here's our host, Susan Michael. Well, hey there, and welcome back. This is the 3D Jesus Bible series, and this is part three about Jesus's childhood. Now, my goal in this series is to help Jesus come alive to you like he never has before, that you will understand the story behind the stories about Jesus, that you will understand things that are happening that maybe are not so obvious to our 21st century mind. And once we learn the history, the culture, the religious setting, we understand so much more of what God was doing in and through Jesus. So today we're going to talk about his early childhood. Now we've already talked about his uh, family origins from Nazareth, how he was born in Bethlehem, but there's another very interesting part of this story that uh, it comes right after his birth in Bethlehem. And we read about this in Matthew chapter 2. Now, I'm not going to read to you the whole section because it's actually the whole chapter of Matthew 2 that we're going to be going through today. So what I'm going to do is summarize the story for you. But I really uh, suggest that once we finish today's program, that you go and read Matthew 2 for yourself. And I think you're going to see it jump off the page and just come much more alive to you as you know some of the details behind it. Now, in this story, we see that uh, it says that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the days of Herod the Great, that behold, wise men came from the east and came to Jerusalem and said, Where is he born king of the Jews? Because they had seen his star rise from the east. And when Herod heard about this, he was very troubled. And he called all the priests together and uh, the scribes. And he said, where is the king of the Jews supposed to be born? And they said, of course, in Bethlehem. So Herod tells the wise men, he said, go to Bethlehem. You'll find him there. When you do, bring him to me because I also would like to worship him. Well, of course, we know that's not true at all. Herod was very, very paranoid. And he was very concerned if there was a rival king that had been born in Bethlehem. So it says, though, that the wise men go to Bethlehem and they find, they come to the house and they see the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fall down and worship him and they open their treasures and present to him gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then being divinely warned in a dream, they do not go back to Herod and give him any information, but they depart for their country from another way. Now, after this, an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and warns him to take the baby to Egypt and get away from Herod until such time as Herod would die. So then Herod, once he realizes that the wise men have not come back, and he's very, very concerned about this, so he orders what's called the Massacre of the Innocents. Uh, but he, he calls for the murder of all babies in Bethlehem that are two years old and younger. And uh, soon after this, not surprisingly, Herod dies. 
I'm sure uh, there was a little bit of divine retribution in this story as well. And so an angel appears to Joseph in Egypt and he says, it's safe now, bring the child and go back to the land of Israel. And they do, and they return uh, to Nazareth. So that's the story in a nutshell, but I want to take a few very key elements of this story to explain to you what's going on here. Now, the fact that there was a star, um, this is a messianic expectation within uh, the Jewish people, and it's based on a, a scripture in the book of Numbers. And it says that a star shall arise out of Jacob. And so somehow uh, Jewish tradition interpreted that to mean that uh, the Messiah would be, of course, out of Jacob, but the Messiah would be as a star. And then out of that, there's a tradition of an actual star itself. Um, so, but having established that now, who are these wise men from the East, the Magi from the East? And, and uh, you know, we see in our Christmas pageants, which I, I have to correct for a minute, uh, we have the manger, we have the animals, we have the baby Jesus, and we have the three kings from the Orient presenting their gifts. Well, the three kings were not there at the birth of Jesus. And uh, this story takes place sometime after the birth. And how do we know this? Is because in verse 10, it says here that they come to the house and they see the young child. And the word used here is not, a ch is not the word for a baby. It's the word for a toddler. So they come to a house now. Uh, Mary and Joseph are in a house and it's not with the animals, it's not in the manger, and uh, they find the young toddler uh, with Mary's mother, and they fall down and worship him and present their gifts. So who are these magi that are following uh, this star? When did the star rise? And, um, you know, in the, uh, the world that time, travel was not overnight, and, um, and this, this star and this constellation that got their attention, um, it seems like by the time they actually arrived in, and, and they first go to Jerusalem, because if this is the star of a king, then where do you go but to the main city uh, where the king resides? So they go there looking for this newborn king. And so it took time. And it seems like it may have actually been as much as two years because Herod, uh, he asked them, when did this star first appear? And then when he orders the death of the babies, it's anyone two years and younger. So uh, it seems that Jesus could have been as old as two years, um, perhaps a little bit younger. So who are they? Well, it's very interesting because, of course, the, the Medes and the Persians considered their priestly caste to be magi. That's what they called them. So these were um, high-level people, and they were known for the religious things of the Medes and the Persians. So that would be interpreting dreams, and that would be understanding um, stars and as they are uh, predicting things, the constellations, and of course, along with that goes magic and divination and all. And um, but why would they be following a star uh, for the Jewish king? 
And did they know that? And what did they know about that? And so they are readers of the stars, and they find in the stars um, certain predictions. And so, yeah, that's a part of what they did. But very, very interesting is to realize that about 500 years later, we find in the book of Daniel that Daniel, who interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar, is actually put over all of the Magi in Babylon at the time. So he was put over in charge of them. That means that he was able to teach them. He taught them all about his traditions, uh, the Jewish traditions, the beliefs, and with that would have been that this star that would predict uh, the Messiah. And they had carried it on, not because they were Jewish, um, but because it was one of the things that they incorporated into their body of belief. And uh, so here they come following that star, um, thanks to Daniel. And they find here Jesus the toddler, and so uh, the angel warns Joseph and says, get out of here, Herod knows and um, get to Egypt for safety. So Egypt, you know, uh, in Egypt, there was a large Jewish community already living there. Why and from when? Well, because of the exile. So during the time of the Assyrian exile, and especially during the Babylonian exile, some of the Jews from Judea had fled down into Egypt to get away from these invading armies coming down from the north. So since the time of the Babylonian exile, there had been Jews living in Egypt, and there was a very large community there. Um, the Joseph and Mary would have gone and lived with other Jews in the area. They would have been cared for. They would have been received and welcomed. It's very interesting. I was just in Egypt a couple of years ago, and we visited a church there, which is said to be built over the site of where Jesus lived when he was in Egypt. And uh, this is a very, very special uh, tradition in the Coptic church in Egypt. And uh, so they have preserved these traditions and the history. And I saw in their courtyard a map of various areas along the Nile uh, where Jesus would have done certain things or Mary and Joseph would have taken him and done certain things. And I'm sure there's probably a church built over every one of those uh, sites. But this is an important tradition for the Coptic church. And uh, there seems to be real um, historical evidence for it. Now, let's go back to Herod the Great. <clears throat> um, skeptics say that there's no proof that Herod the Great really called for the death of all the babies in Bethlehem. And um, so, you know, one, it's one of those things. One day we may find the evidence that proves it. But if not, uh, this story is so keeping with who we know Herod the Great to be. And I need to tell you this story. Herod the Great was a very complicated and very contradicted individual. He uh, was of descendants of the uh, Idumeans, which were Arab, and the Nabataeans. And um, they lived within that, remember, Hasmonean uh, 
kingdom where the Hasmoneans were trying to repopulate these areas with Jews, and they actually forced some of the people within their borders to convert to Judaism. So Herod the Great's uh, ancestors had been forced to convert to Judaism. Uh, maybe he was himself as a child. And uh, so he was Arab by ethnicity, but he was Jewish by religion, and he was very Greek in his culture, and he was a Roman vassal king. Uh, so uh, he was very, very complicated, and uh, he, the Romans named him King of the Jews. So 37 years before the death, uh, before the birth of Jesus, or 30 years before the birth of Jesus, it was Herod the Great that overthrew the Hasmonean Jewish dynasty in order to start his own. And because he was, you know, a convert to Judaism, he really he was a conflicted Jew, he wasn't really uh, very religious, uh, he wasn't well liked or accepted by the Jewish people. And um, so he did certain things to try to please the Jews, but at the same time, he was very uh, almost pagan, I mean, in his Greek culture and um, in his political allegiance to Rome. And he is known as being uh, very evil and very sick. Historians all agree he was very, very depressed and he was extremely paranoid. And that's why this story is so keeping with who Herod the Great was. Her Herod married a princess of the Hasmonean line. Her name was Miriam, and he had sons by her. And at one point, he got so paranoid that they were going to try to do away with him and reestablish a Hasmonean dynasty that he murders her and uh, their two sons. He murders another son. He's, he's totally paranoid and very, very vicious. Um, Josephus said, Josephus tells a story that Herod the Great knew he was so hated by the Jewish people in his kingdom that uh, when he died, it wouldn't be a day of mourning. It'd probably be a day of celebration. So what did he do? He ordered uh, leaders from every village and every area of the country to be rounded up and locked up, and that on the day that he died, this was approaching his death, he was very, very ill, and he knew it, and that on his death, that they would all be murdered, and that way the land would mourn on the day of his death. Now, that's a very sick person, and luckily on the day of his birth, uh, of his death, sorry, his sister and uh, his son did not carry out his wishes, and those men were all released. They were not killed. Herod the Great was also brilliant, and he was a master builder, probably the best in the world at that time. Uh, he undertook colossal building projects. Uh, he was also extremely wealthy and a very, very uh, shrewd business person. So he was able to invest tons of money into humongous building projects. Um, he was only second to Caesar in some ways, and in some ways he actually exceeded Caesar. And we know that out of about 20 of his projects in the Holy Land were actually world-class. They actually broke world records. I'm just gonna give you a few examples. The famous Temple Mount in Jerusalem, we go there today, it's a big plaza, 
But of course, the temple was destroyed long ago. But Herod's temple that stood on that plaza, first of all, he built the plaza, and it was the largest in the known world. He built the temple. It was the largest in the ancient world. It stood 15 stories high. It was massive. And in order to expand this whole uh, platform on which he built this magnificent temple, he had to build huge retaining walls to hold uh, in the earth. And some of the stones in those retaining walls are over 500 ton stones. And um, so it's really quite an amazing feat that he built. And the Jews were very, very proud of this temple. I mean, this was just a magnificent uh, temple built, uh, Herod said, to be of the grandeur and dignity uh, that his capital city should have. But everybody knows he also did it to try to appease the Jewish people. Another amazing building project of Herod was the port in Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean coast. It's called Caesarea Maritima. And that was the most technologically advanced harbor in all of antiquity. He used a cutting edge um, hydraulic cement that he could use underwater. And out of almost nothing, he built this huge port, the largest in the eastern Mediterranean. That, of course, produced amazing amounts of money for him as trade went through there, and, um, and it made him very, very wealthy. Another huge uh, building project was the fortress on Matsada. Today, when you go with me to Israel, we definitely will go to Matsada. You have to take a cable car up to get to the top, and there you'll see the remains of the most amazing um, palace that Herod built up in the middle of nowhere. I mean, Matsada is a huge rock, <laughs> a huge rock, mountainous rock in the middle of barren wilderness, nothing but dust and rocks. And up there, he built a pal two palaces with a swimming pool and Roman bathhouses, and they had a whole agricultural area where they raised crops up there. How did he do it? How did you get water out of nowhere? Well, he built this amazing system of aqueducts and reservoirs. So as it rained in the hills in Jerusalem, he had aqueducts catching this rain coming down into the desert and brought it up to Mitsada and into cisterns and a retaining system. It was really magnificent. And you go up there, his palace is three tiers right on the edge of the cliff. I mean, it's gorgeous. Another amazing uh, building project is what's called the Herodium. This was the largest palace in the world. It was larger than Caesar's palace. And this was the palace that Herod built for himself and where he was eventually buried. It just so happens that when you are standing outside of Bethlehem, looking out over the shepherd's fields around Bethlehem, you'll see in the distance a hill that looks like a volcano where Herod had this hill cut off and the top removed, and that's where he built his palace the Herodium. So Jesus was born in this uh, simple um, cave uh, or, or manger outside of Bethlehem in the shadow of this egotistical, evil, tyrannical king 
which was an antichrist kind of figure. Yet Herod put Judea on the map. Throughout the Roman Empire, they knew of Judea and the Jews because of these magnificent building projects and of the wealth. So King Herod really put Judea on the map and I think helped pave the way for the gospel of Jesus Christ to go forth from there uh, throughout the Roman Empire. Now that brings us to uh, the childhood of Jesus. Uh, we know that Joseph is told in a dream that Herod has died. He can come back to the land. And so he brings Mary and Jesus and they return to the city of Nazareth. And the scriptures actually become quite silent about Jesus's childhood. We only know really of one story where at the age of 12, uh, they go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the uh, Passover feast. And Jesus uh, is left behind at the temple and the caravan, the whole village, they're headed back to Nazareth and they've been gone for three days before Mary and Joseph realize that Jesus is not with the children. They go back and they find him discussing the things of the law and the Torah with the priest. And uh, everybody is astounded at the wisdom of this child. That's the only story we really know of from the scriptures about Jesus's childhood. So what can we assume about his childhood knowing um, how families lived at the time of Jesus and in the area there of Nazareth of Galilee? Um, we do know from the scriptures, let me say first, that uh, Jesus did have brothers and sisters. So we know he had four brothers because they're named by name. It's James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. And it says he also had sisters, plural. So he, he had at least two sisters. Um, James, the brother of Jesus, later became the head of the church in Jerusalem after Jesus died and ascended into heaven. Um, that says a lot to me. When you've grown up in the same house um, with your brother, Jesus, and you go and head up the movement of believers uh, in the divinity of Jesus afterwards, that says a lot to me. Because when you, you grow up in the same family, you know so much about that person. And even Jesus himself said that, you know, a prophet is usually not accepted in his own hometown. A lot of it's because of that. Uh, but his brother, James, became the head of the church there in Jerusalem. Now, uh, Nazareth, we know it was small. Probably all of 150 people lived in Nazareth. And as I said, they were really an extended clan, a, a, one big family there. But it was big enough that they had a synagogue. And in synagogue uh, is where you went to learn. And so uh, they would have taught Torah there. And Jesus, as a young boy, would have begun memorizing Torah as a small child by the age of five or six. And um, by the age of 10, he would have memorized the Torah, which for us in the in the uh, Christian Bible, it's the first five books we call the Pentateuch or the Torah. Uh, he would have had those memorized and he would have begun memorizing uh, the oral Torah. So these are the oral traditions that the Jewish people passed down alongside the written uh, tradition of the Torah. 
Jesus, at the age of 12, 13, would have begun uh, to learn a trade. And this is why it's interesting, when they found Jesus in the temple, uh, what he said to his mother and father was this. He said, uh, don't you know that I should be about the business of my father? Now, Joseph's business was as a carpenter or a tradesman. It wasn't in the temple. So which father was Jesus talking about? But his heavenly father, that that was the business Jesus was going to follow. It wasn't going to be uh, the business of the carpentry, although we do know that he did do carpentry uh, as a young man in the home there with Joseph. Um, Torah was everything for the Jewish people. The, it was a part of their everyday life. And this is something, you know, um, for us today in our world, we have to admit we are more Greek and Roman in the way we see the world. Uh, in the Jewish or Hebraic mindset, all of life uh, is worship, and that's why they pray before they do anything. They have a blessing for everything. Everything that they do in life is seen as unto the Lord. It's really very beautiful. And, um, and so Torah was, was talked about all day long by everyone. It was, it was acted upon. It was um, obeyed. It was taught, it was, it was spoken. And so the women were very, very familiar with Torah as much as the men were, although the, it was the men that did more the formal study of the Torah. Um, the, every Sabbath in the synagogue, I, one of the members of the community would read from the Torah and give an exposition of it. They all studied it, they all taught it, they all lived it. The rabbis taught that the highest form of worship was study of the scriptures, not even prayer. It says when you pray, you speak to God, but when you study the scripture, God speaks to you. That's why they love to study the scripture, and that's what we need to learn from them, is that love of searching out the scriptures and letting God speak to us in it. Now, very quickly, there were, uh, in the time of Jesus, which differs from the Old Testament time. In the Old Testament time, when the uh, uh, tabernacle was there, you had the priest, and then you had the office of prophet. But after the Old Testament is, the last book is written, in Malachi, it's sort of like the last prophet that we really know of. And so what begins to develop in this 400-year period in between the Old Testament and the New is a little bit of a different system. And this system was made up of synagogues. There were synagogues everywhere. Every community had a synagogue, and it was a place where they came to learn. And the people that were over the synagogues were the Pharisees. They were the study, they taught the law, they studied the law, and they taught the law. And you had your rabbis, and you, you had a system outside of the tabernacle and the priest. And so in, in Jesus's time, there were three different classes of what we would call religious clerics. Um, in Jerusalem, you had the Sadducees. There were only 71 Sadducees, and they, out of their midst, was the high priest, and then they were um, 
the priest in the temple, and they were the highest authority. They sat on what was called the Sanhedrin, and so they were the priestly class. They were very affluent. Uh, they were very powerful. And, uh, but there were only 71 of them, and they were in Jerusalem. Out throughout the land then, you had the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were out teaching in the synagogues and with the people and helping to interpret the law at the everyday level for the people. But because the Sadducees had become corrupt, I mean, power corrupts, and a lot of times affluence corrupts, and so this priestly class in Jerusalem was becoming more and more corrupt. And as they did, there was a third group that broke off and left Jerusalem and went out into the desert to live in a way almost like what we would call today as monks. They were called the Essenes, and they really um, emphasized purity. They got away from the unclean, compromised political affluent priesthood and were out in the desert praying. Um, they were scribes. They were writing the, uh, the scrolls and uh, praying for a restoration of purity um, to the Jewish people and to their leadership. It is believed that in Nazareth and in the Galilee in general, there was a little bit of influence of the Essenes, and there was a bit of an emphasis on purity. And we know this because of the archaeological finds. In the Galilee, there was a lot of stoneware. They ate from stoneware. Why? Because stoneware uh, could not be polluted. It was a part of a emphasis on purity. And so uh, it seems like that Jesus's upbringing may have been um, a little a little strict, a little uh, more emphasizing that purity. And um, when he left then Nazareth and began his ministry, we see him interacting a lot with the Pharisees. And uh, that's for uh, next week. But this is kind of how our Jesus grew up there in Nazareth. And I just want to end with one final point. Um, Jesus was a wonderful son and brother. And we know that because his brother James becomes the head of the church. That doesn't happen um, if you're someone that your brother would dismiss you know, but uh, I believe he was also a good son. And so he did enter into the business with his father and he worked with his hands in carpentry. Some people say that at that time, uh, the word that the, the Greek word that's used here doesn't necessarily mean wood carpentry. It can mean stonework because that's a lot of the building was done with stones in the days. And while that may be true, uh, there's a church father um, that was writing in the second century, and uh, his name was Justin, and he wrote and said that a hundred years after Jesus, so this is in the mid-second century, he said that uh, there were still plows being used by the farmers that had been made by Joseph and Jesus. So Jesus was known for making plows and they were still in use. They were made so well. The worksmanship was so good. They were still being used a hundred years after his life. This is Jesus the child, fully human, fully man, 
from humble beginnings, a wonderful son, and a wonderful brother. And all this sets the stage for what we're going to talk about next time when he reveals himself as also fully God and he begins his ministry there in the region of the Galilee. So I look forward to seeing you back here. And until then, God bless. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA, all rights reserved.